to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. I want to say just a few words about uh, verses 13 through 16, and then and then I want to um, probably could do a we could probably do a complete sermon on 13 through 16. But I want to just say I could have included it with last week's and probably should have, but I want to touch on it just a little bit and then and then move on to uh, 17 through what 30, 31, 17 through th- through 31 after that, uh, but I want to say just a few words about, about this. It looks very similar to what, what we saw in chapter 9 uh, regarding the children, but let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, this, this time. We do pray that you would be among us, give us ears to hear, and uh, help us, Father, to, uh, to seek you with all of our heart, uh, to uh, love you with all of it, and uh, to, uh, to seek to obey you. We pray, Father, that uh, you would just be in our midst today, and uh, we ask for your, your grace, your mercy, in Christ's name, amen. So uh, in chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, it says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now this section, as I said, could have been included with the previous section, which we looked at last week, which was a section on marriage. And if we look back on it, thinking about children in relation to marriage, we might gather why Mark has has put it where he has. Last week, we saw that Jesus took a hard line on, on divorce. He did not pull punches. He said that if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, he commits adultery. she commits adultery. That's a pretty hard line. And we saw last week that he didn't soften it. We saw that rather than agreeing with the Pharisees on the whole issue, Jesus says that permission to divorce was a solution that Moses granted because of and only because of the hardness of heart that Israel had. It had nothing to do with God's intention in marriage, which we saw was in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2 of Genesis. He quotes from chapter 2 of Genesis to say, look, this is the real intention of marriage. Uh, and then he, then he quotes from Genesis 5 as well to say that he made mankind male and female. This was the original intention. We also saw that, and this was really the main takeaway that I wanted you to, to take away from it. For Jesus to indicate that permission to divorce was granted because of hardness of heart and then to to turn around and deny that outlet to those who are seeking divorce now meant, it meant this, that Jesus himself was offering and would bring about a new reality, a new age in which hardness of heart would be dealt with. What Jesus envisions as the coming reality is a time, a new age he calls the kingdom of God, in which those who belong to Jesus do not have to have hard hearts. 
And if we do, if we persist in our hard-heartedness, it is because we have thought that the Christian life should simply work automatically and easily. The cure for hard-heartedness does not come automatically, but with spirit-driven work. The work that will be put into effect with the coming of the Spirit in the New Covenant. By transformation of the mind through, through learning to have the mind of Christ. By letting the Word of God dwell in us and being shaped by it. Through recognizing our own inadequacies and shortfalls, and in response to these inadequacies and shortfalls in our spouses, we should show grace, forgiveness, and tender-heartedness. Now, in this next little section about the children and how such, such ones like these receive the kingdom, we should keep in mind this previous section on marriage and divorce. It's as if he puts this here to say, listen guys, I've just taught you about divorce. Let's think about what the children are going to experience as a result. Now, this is not to turn this into some kind of mushy, it's all about the children. But I submit that it is very, very serious to think about what happens in relation to the children in terms of uh, when, when divorce occurs. And I think Jesus is very uh, much concerned with this. For just as Moses' permission to divorce safeguarded the vulnerability of the woman being sent away, so Mark's arrangement of his gospel suggests that the most vulnerable within the family should be considered. For the future of the kingdom of God, as Deuteronomy 11 lays out in terms of Old Covenant, is dependent on this familial, generational connection. It is in this way that the New Covenant is like the Old Covenant. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are when you're sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. It is in this way that the new covenant is like the old. It is dependent upon the teaching of children uh, to continue the covenant. There is scarcely any greater hardness of heart than to refuse to take into consideration the next generation in our own decisions about marriage and divorce. Is there anything more Christian than to, more unchristian to say that it doesn't matter what the children think or what will happen to them long term in their lives and for generations to come. I submit that there is not a greater hard-heartedness. Now, I want to turn to uh, verses 17 through 31 and uh, talk about this, this interesting section that is, that is repeated in, in multiple Gospels. Uh, it's, it's, in other Gospels, it's this, uh, this little pericope is often called the rich young ruler. And we find out a little bit more about this person, this man. He's only called in, in this passage a man. Uh, but in the other Gospels, he's called rich, he's called young, and he's called a ruler. Okay, and so then we know it's, we kind of know it's the same story because he asks the same question, right? And so there are lots of overlaps between these stories. 
So we'll, we'll call it the rich young ruler. We will see that it has basically the same thrust as in the other gospels. And then we'll look at what it means in relation to, and this is gonna be important, um, in, relation, in relation to what Jesus is bringing about. Uh, as we discussed last week, he's, he's in, discussing, in discussing marriage and divorce, he is bringing about a solution to the hard-heartedness. It's not as though he's just some great moral teacher and he's saying, okay, don't do this, do this, I'm gonna teach you some wisdom and you go out there and apply it. No, he's saying that what he is doing in his death and resurrection is going to provide a solution for hardness of heart, which was not there in the old covenant, right? Moses knew this, Moses knew they had hard hearts and he knew that this must be undone. And Jeremiah, the prophets, they all talk about this. I'll take out your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. You're hard-hearted, right? And Jesus is claiming that he's going to inaugurate this time. And we'll see that this, this particular section is about that as well, but in a different way. Verse, uh, verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house and brothers and sis or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, I'd like to say before I get into this that there's no possible way that I can discuss everything that's in here. So I'm, I'm going to try to get at uh, what I think the heart of this is. And I, if you want to discuss this further I, and all of the things that I leave out, uh, we can do that. I'd love to do that. But um, I, want to, I want to discuss... I want to come at this just a little bit differently than it has been, uh, that it, and people have come at it uh, in the past. 
It has been understood in a variety of ways, and a couple of these will, will serve uh, in some way as, as kind of an opposition to what I want to say about this passage. Number one, commentators have often understood this passage as teaching how one can go to heaven when he or she dies. And it is perhaps uh, possible to read it in that way um, if you ignore the first century understanding about the future. Uh, in other words, eschatology. So uh, you've heard me use that term before. Uh, this is, once again, we're going to, we're going to come into, we're going to look at that kind of, um, that, what do you call it, a doctrine, if you will, the doctrine of eschatology. Um, and it's perhaps possible to read it that way. It simply means how did, how did they view the present in relation to the future? And how did they view themselves within, within this framework? That's basically eschatology. How does the present relate to the future and what's going to happen in the future and how do I participate in that? We'll, we'll get more into that in a few minutes. Secondly, this passage has often been understood as a universal uh, command to reject riches and to embrace a life of poverty. Now, not so much now, but uh, we, know, we know historically that this passage and, and others like it have been used uh, to justify you know, people becoming monks and kind of uh, secluding themselves off from society so that they can uh, be basically live a life of poverty and and um, get away from the from the ungodly system that uses money and so forth. And uh, one could imagine that uh, you could use this right if you if you read every passage uh, literally and you take everything that Jesus says and you say, okay, well he meant that for me, right? That's, that was written for me, then, then you might say, well, then I need to just uh, be poor. Uh, and, and people who are not are bad, right? People who, you can hear this all, all the time in, in the world that, in which we live. But I don't think this passage is teaching either of these things. Let's look, what we'll do is we'll look at, at the question that this man asks and, and then we'll look at what does he mean by it. And then this will give us a, it will give us a way into what Jesus' answer is. So first of all, to understand the question, we must understand the way that both Jesus and his contemporaries, his Jewish brethren, would have, understand, would have understood the future, what we might call eschatology. Jesus' contemporaries and Jesus himself including the Pharisees and including the Essenes who, from Qumran and other, other groups uh, other than the Sadducees. The, other, the Sadducees denied the resurrection, which, which means that they denied the age to come, the resurrection. And they would not have asked this question that this rich young ruler asked. They would, say, they would not have believed in eternal life because eternal life in their in their world was the life of the age to come, and they didn't believe in it, okay? But all the other groups, including Jesus, would have said, yes, we believe in the present evil age, and then we believe that there will be an age inaugurated by God called the age to come, and this age to come is eternal life, okay? This is not heaven. This is not exactly heaven. This is the age to come. This is called the resurrection. And uh, I, 
This is going to sound very strange, but I think if we begin to approach it this way, a lot of these questions that, um, well, this question that he's asking is going to make sense. They believed that they were living in what, uh, well, what the Apostle Paul called this present evil age. Look at the beginning of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 says he delivered us out of this present evil age, and he put us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's this this two-age view of eschatology. Then there was an expectation, though we are living in this present evil age, that something spectacular would eventually happen, and it could happen at any moment, that God would act sometime in the future to bring about the age to come, what the translators of our English versions have translated as eternal life. These two ages... This present evil age and the age to come constituted the common framework by which they viewed all of reality. The Jews called these ha'olam hazeh, this this world, and ha'olam haba, the coming world. This world and the coming world. This age and the coming age. In In our present passage, you will see that the age to come, eternal life, is equated with entering the kingdom of God. We can see this at the end of the present passage because when he explains himself to the disciples, he says, so remember the question. The question was, how can I enter eternal life? How can I have eternal life? When he explains himself to the disciples, he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God, is the equivalent of eternal life. This is what I'm getting at, okay? Now, these are virtual synonyms. Entering the kingdom of God is entering the life of the age to come, eternal life. This is to be, and this is the very important part, this is viewed within the first century as an earthly reality. Not leave this place and go to heaven somewhere, but it's an earthly reality. When God comes, when God arrives, and he makes this world right, he puts things to rights, this is called the age to come. New heavens and new earth is what the equivalent that we see in the book of Revelation, wherein righteousness dwells. When, in a similar way, as at the beginning, heaven and earth are joined as one. So the young man is asking this one thing, What should I do in the present in order that I might enter the age to come, that time when God puts all things right? For this young man and every devout Jew of the first century, in the coming age, God would at last become king and rule over all things, and he would set them right. In the coming age, as Isaiah spoke about, the wolf would lie down with the lamb, and the child would play by the hole of the adder. That is to say, as, in, as Isaiah says there as well in, in Isaiah 11, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In this new age, and often called a new temple, the mountain, the mountain of the house of the Lord, which will fill the earth, see Daniel 2, 
They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is the age to come. And this young man, who the other gospel writers call the rich young ruler, is wondering how he can be assured entrance into that coming age. If this sounds strange to you, it should, because we've been re reading our Bibles like medievals. And what will Jesus' answer to him be? This will be stranger still, for he doesn't say what we would typically say. Just believe in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven, and you'll go to heaven when you die. No. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Basically, he says, do these and you'll live. And what does the guy say? Teacher, all these I have kept from my, my youth. What Jesus is doing here, by citing four of the Ten Commandments, is he, what is he doing? Is he saying that these are the most important commandments out of the Ten, and if you keep them, you will enter the age to come? We would object, but the reason that we would object is because we would say you can't enter the kingdom by works. Okay? That's not what he's getting at here. Is he saying that these are, <clears throat> these are the most important? If you do these, you'll live? He doesn't seem to be saying that because the man says he's done all of these and Jesus takes him further. Now, as good reformed thinkers that we are, we think, aha, we know what the problem is. This is... This is not going to be acceptable to Jesus because Jesus knows that no one can ever be good enough. Do enough commandments to enter the age to come. And this is the interpretation that we often take here. But I'd suggest that's not exactly what's going on. Since Jesus goes on to give him some other works to do to get him to eternal life. Jesus is not setting him up in order then to tell him that there's nothing he can do to enter the age to come other than believing in him. Maybe, but it's not exactly that way, and I think the way that we look at this will, uh, will, uh, will bear that out. It's not as if to say, you Jews think that you're actually good enough for the age to come, but I'm here to tell you that no one is good enough. Therefore, believe in me and everything will be fine. That's not exactly what's happening. Let's look at the reply that Jesus gives him, and then let's ask ourselves what he's doing with this answer. He's doing something with it, right? So it's not simply this formula that he's going to give him that's going to get him into the age to come. And Jesus, looking at, him, <coughs> looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, the list of commandments that Jesus had cited for the man, he chose only four out of the Ten Commandments. I contend that what's important in this list is not what's included, but what is left out. And that Jesus is going to get to those via another route. So what's included in this list of commandments leaves out quite a few commandments. 
Jesus had cited injunctions against murder, adultery, theft, bearing false witness, but he left out the following. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his ass or anything that is your neighbor's. Leaving aside what he says about the Sabbath elsewhere, we should note that two out of four of the remaining commandments deal with idolatry, and the last one deals with covetousness. Things that are all in one way or another applied to money and possessions elsewhere, by Jesus, but also by Paul. For example, Jesus says elsewhere, one cannot serve God and mammon, money. Paul says greed is idolatry. There is an intrinsic and insidious danger with money and possessions. Their presence in this world alone tempts us to accumulate them and, once we have done so, to develop a trust in them that is altogether unhealthy and idolatrous. Now, hear me out. I am not saying let me say what I am saying. Uh, I believe that the, the best system for dealing with scarcity, dealing with scarce resources on this planet is the price system that capitalism offers, okay? So this is not an anti-capitalism rant, okay? But it is the best system underneath uh, in this present evil age, okay? And we could talk more about that, so, but don't misunderstand what I'm saying. When we trust in those, those things that we accumulate in whatever way we do, whether for advantage or simple security, this puts us into a servant-master relationship. And to serve something is to do its will. In other words, inanimate objects take on personal properties and begin to make us do their will. This fundamentally is what idolatry is. Inanimate objects take on personal properties and begin to make us do their will. This is not an over-spiritualization of, of the concept of idolatry. We tend to think that in the world, in the modern world in which we live, we know what idolatry means and we don't engage in it, right? Because we're smart enough to know that a statue is not a person, not a god. How foolish would we, would we be to think that uh, this, this statue that we make is somehow god? Yet every day, we give power to inanimate objects to boss us around. We serve them when we do their bidding. And money and possessions are some of the most tempting in this regard. In this instance, the person who is being addressed has many possessions. And because of these possessions, and apparently his unwillingness to part with them for the sake of Jesus, he would be excluded from the age to come. There's no other way to interpret this passage. That because of his possessions, and this is what Mark says, he went away sad, right? He would be excluded from the age to come. Many people today 
build their lives not around their possession, but around uh, possessions, but around the envy of others who have possessions. So I'm not I'm not here uh, harping on those who have possessions. This is equally harmful, generating all kinds of evil. It is not only the rich who are tempted with the idolatry of money. The desire for wealth has driven many people to do things they never would have done without that envy in their hearts. But to come back to our text, the man in our story is loved by the Lord, and we don't know exactly what happens to him in the end, but we do know that it's his possessions and the comfort and security that they offer. They have become idols and, can keep, and will keep him from the age to come if he does not renounce them. Now, this, this still doesn't solve the problem of what Jesus is requiring from this man. It doesn't solve the problem of Jesus requiring him to do certain things to inherit the kingdom to come. Is Jesus somehow slipping into some kind of works-based salvation? On, uh, is he slipping this in the back door? No, because this construct is not a consideration of Jesus. They are not sitting around discussing whether they can do something to earn God's pleasure. Is Jesus, sitting, or is Jesus saying that if you keep all the commandments that you will inherit eternal life? Yes and no. And I think this is where this, is where this whole thing is going. And I'm going to try to bring this back around and tie it, tie it into what the new covenant is promising. Is Jesus saying that if you keep all the commandments that you will inherit eternal life? Yes and no. No in the sense that there's no checklist that can be checked off constantly as we live our lives. It just doesn't work that way. But he is saying in some sense, if you keep the commandments, you will inherit eternal life. But he's saying this with a twist. And I want to be very clear about this because this is this uh, could lend itself to confusion that somehow I'm saying that you can inherit eternal life by doing good things. Okay? It's not what I'm saying. He is saying, keep the commandments, and if you do so, you will inherit eternal life. Now, last week we saw that uh, in the new covenant, there would be a remedy for hardness of heart. Somehow, in some way, through what Jesus is doing, there would be a remedy for that. There would be a new age in which, uh, which would be inaugurated by Jesus himself in which people could be joined together in marriage and remain that way. In the same way, here Jesus is saying, he's bringing this back to what am I inaugurating here? What am I doing in, in my vicarious death and resurrection? What am I about to do? He is saying here that the time has come for God's law to be written on the heart and obeyed from the heart. Remember those passages. What in the world does he mean? What do the prophets mean? The time is coming when God will write the law upon your hearts. This seems to be what Jesus is saying. Why would he, why would he come to these commandments and say, do these and live? And then the guy says, I've done these. And then he says, follow me. Do these, follow me. He is saying that what he is doing is inaugurating the new covenant in which the law can be kept, right? Not by walking around with a set of commandments in our pocket, but with the Spirit of God filling our minds, helping us to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. For those in the Messiah, the verdict of the law 
will be eternal life. The verdict of the law under the old covenant was guilt and death. The verdict of the law in Christ Jesus, read Romans 8, the verdict of the law in Christ Jesus will be eternal life to those who are in the Messiah. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in the Messiah. And then he says, the righteous requirement of the law of the law is fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but walk according to the spirit. For those in the Messiah, the verdict of the law will be eternal life. The time has come for the word to be near you in your mouth and in your heart. Precisely what Paul meant in Romans 10, quoting Deuteronomy 30. This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who shall ascend into heaven to bring it down to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it, right? When Jesus inaugurates the new age, the, the law will be written upon the heart, it will be in the heart, and it will be possible to do it. The way that one do it, does it, how does one do it? And we get this right there from this passage, this present passage in Mark 10. Come, follow me. That's what he's saying. You want to keep the law? You want to keep the law? Keep the commandments and come follow me because they pointed to me as the one who would make it possible through the death and resurrection that the spirit might come, that the spirit might be outpoured, that we then might walk in, uh, in fulfillment of the law. It is this last statement, this last requirement that, la that Jesus lays upon this man, come follow me, that is most important. He has said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Not because, as many have understood, Jesus wants everyone to be poor and needy and begging. No, but because the possessions stood in the way like idols do, like the first commandment laid out, shall have no other gods before me. It stands in the way between him and the life of the age to come. Between living in and embracing this present age, this present evil age, and following Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Now, all of us here must decide, often daily, if we will put away our idols to serve the living God. Both young and old must assess what, if anything, prevents our following of Jesus. What inanimate objects have we surrendered our prerogative as free sons to in order to be slaves? A person will always serve something, and none of us can escape this reality. Will we be ruled, or will we rule in life by following Jesus without hindrance, or will we shrink back to following idols? We must wrestle with God and prevail, even if we walk with a limp afterwards. Contrary to popular opinion, it is difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has said this twice. But for those who forsake all, whatever that looks like in your own life, there are none who have left all these things who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, he says. A new family, new lands, along with persecutions, he adds, and in the age to come, eternal life.
Let me summarize with this. The man is seeking to know what he should do to inherit the age to come. Jesus tells him to keep the commandments, four of them precisely, exactly what we would expect from a devout, scriptural, observant Jew in the first century. The man says he has done all of these since his youth, and Jesus points out his need, sell all that he has and follow Jesus. He tells him this not some, as some kind of works-based salvation scheme, but by pointing him to the pervasive idolatry in his life. His possessions stood in the way of the kingdom of God. And by pointing him to himself, to Jesus himself, as the one through whom the, the new covenant would be inaugurated, a time when the law would be written upon the heart and people would do it and live. In other words, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this kingdom will fulfill all that the scriptures had spoken about. The new age, eternal life, had arrived in Jesus himself, see John 11. And those who follow him are assured of life in the age to come and already possess it in advance. This last point should be emphasized. What we are dealing with when we read the Gospels, and this will help as you, as you read those passages that talk about eternal life as both a present reality and something that is to come. Eternal life is possession of the life of the age to come in this present evil age. And this is what Paul means when he says you've been delivered out of this present evil age. You're in the life of the age to come. You're in eternal life. But yet that eternal life is going to be future in some way. This is exactly what he's dealing with. Look at John 11. John 11 is all about this. The resurrection, Jesus himself, has come back into the present. The resurrection was supposed to be out there somewhere in the age, to, you know, at a, at a time when, Jesus would uh, when the Lord would return, set up his kingdom, judge the nations, that would be the time when, uh, when eternal life would be inaugurated. What Jesus has done is he has come back into the present from the future and given us eternal life, a foretaste, if you will. Like living in the wilderness and going into the land and bringing some of the fruit from the land back into the wilderness and tasting of it. This is the life of the age to come that has now come back into the present we are living in it, we are tasting of it, and what is to come will be even greater. That will be truly the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Now what he has just said isn't go is going to be very important for the disciples. By doing so, he continues to define the kingdom, what I spoke about a bit last week. But the disciples still do not quite understand, as we'll see next time. What they seem to envision is a Messiah enthroned in Jerusalem, distributing possessions and property to those who are faithful to him. You can see it. Right? You can see this could happen with a king. King is going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. He's going to distribute everything to his, uh, those who are faithful to him. But they have misunderstood what following Jesus means, even as it's explained to him. Next week, we'll look at that misunderstanding, and we'll look at, at what, he is, um, what he is getting at when he explains to them the way in which the kingdom is going to come about through his death and resurrection.